today we're going to talk a little bit about apologetics, defending your faith. And it's a topic that I'm passionate about. I do a radio show where I get to talk with some of the leading apologists about answers for some of the biggest questions that we face. And I am even more passionate, though, about equipping Christians to do that. Because I'm only one person, and I can't share with that many people. But if we can all collectively share the evidence for our faith in Christ, we're going to get a lot further down the road. So I believe that everybody needs to get some apologetics training. We're going to do a little bit of that today. We're going to start with 1 Peter 3.15, the go-to verse on apologetics. So you can turn there with me. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. We're going to pull five key principles from this one verse, and they all relate to apologetics and defending your faith. So these are five keys that I think you need to know if you're going to be effective in defending your faith. The five keys are, one, relinquish control, right? Set apart Christ as Lord. Two, resolve to be a light. You're in a dark place where people don't have the same hope you have, so resolve to be a light. Three, ready yourself. Be prepared always. That's a command, and we should be diligent to obey that command. That's where this little, this little insert will come in. Uh, Four, reach out. Take the initiative. People won't know to ask you about the hope that is in you if they don't know that you have hope. (laughs) They're not going to find out you have hope unless you're initiating a conversation with them. And finally, R, respect those you share with. Those are five keys. Relinquish control. Resolve to be a light. Ready yourself. Reach out and respect those you share with. We'll talk more about each one of those so you don't have to memorize them right offhand, but that's what's coming. And I wanted to start by uh, describing to you the context of apologetics. The context today is either ignorance, arrogance, or insolence. Did you get that? Ignorance, arrogance, or insolence. And I think more often than not, it's, in, it's ignorance. And if it's arrogance or insolence, it's probably because of ignorance. Remember the last man on the street video that you watched. Why do you like watching those? Because you can hardly believe how ignorant people are about things, right? They don't remember recent presidents. They don't know basic facts of history or geography, things like that. When you look at those man-on-the-street videos, I want you to make a connection right now. The same ignorance that you see on those videos is where people are at concerning the evidence for Christianity. So they're not looking at the evidence saying the evidence is poor and it's not strong, therefore I'm rejecting it for something better. I have never met a student that does that. They are rejecting it because of ignorance. They've seen bumper stickers and they said, oh yeah, that bumper sticker is right. right. They haven't made a decision against Christianity. So as you think about the context for apologetics... You shouldn't go into it thinking they've understood the evidence, they've learned the evidence, and they've made a hard decision against it. Probably they're ignorant of what you know. And they've probably never had the luxury of a friendly person sharing the evidence with them. And that's where you come in. You get to be that respectful, friendly, hopeful person that shares the evidence that you have with them. We're going to talk a little bit about how to do that this morning. But first I want to tell you a story There's a skater at UNM that I met sharing the gospel. And when I first met him, I went up to him and another young lady that were skating. 
And the young lady said, before you say one more word, I want to know what you think about homosexuals. Okay? It was the first question she asked. And I said, I think that I'm no better than any of them. I think that I am a sinner as much as anyone on this planet. And that it's only through what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross that I can have a relationship with him and hope for the future. And that hope is something I want to share with them. And I told her, I don't believe that lifestyle is healthy. And I do believe it's sinful. But that gives me compassion for those people. It doesn't make me angry with them. I want to share with them the hope that I have in Christ. And she said, if you would have answered any other way, I wouldn't have listened to what you had to say. But she said, go ahead and talk. I got to share with them for about 45 minutes. The kid that was with her, the skater that was with her, ever since then, it's, he's been very friendly, very open with me. He texted me once and he said, hey, when could you come share your wisdom with all my skater friends? Isn't that an interesting way to put it? By wisdom, he means the gospel. Isn't that cool? I talked to this guy two nights ago, right before our apologetics forum. I invited him and his friend. His friend was with him. And he tells his friend, he says, I know you're a deep thinker. I know you're, so you need to listen to this guy. <laughs> he goes, I know, he, whatever you're thinking, it's not true. Believe me, it's not true. You just need to give him a chance and listen to him. It was so special. He's not yet made a decision for Jesus Christ. But if you're willing to just approach people respectfully, I'm not saying back down from the truth, but defend it in a respectful way, there's an open harvest. When Jesus said the harvest is ripe, it's true. It was true then, it's true now. And all that you see going around is just ripening the harvest. It's not satisfying people. It's not giving them answers. So the time is critically important that we take the gospel to them and learn how to defend it in a respectful way. So let's learn a little bit about how to do that. So key number one, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. The key here is to relinquish control. It's a surrender issue. It's a heart issue. Do you remember in Isaiah 6, 8, where Isaiah says, here am I, send me. That's what we're looking for today. Not people that are going to talk a lot about how much they hate what's going on in society, because we're probably all there, okay? But instead of doing that, people that are going to say, God, here am I, send me. I don't want to just talk about how bad things are. I want to go to those people and respectfully engage them in a conversation so they can hear the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. So it's a hard issue. Am I going to be the person that just talks bad about what's going on? Or am I going to be the person that embraces the call to make disciples in this day and age? Charles Spurgeon said, What have you to do with the times but to serve your God in them? That was his answer to the people that said, The times are crazy. How can we follow God with the insanity in our society? He said, Who cares? Your job is to serve your God in these times. So the Great Commission, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. That is a call from your Savior to you. Bill Bright said, You cannot say, No, Lord. Isn't that true? If he's Lord, the only response we can have is, Yes, Lord. He's called you to be a disciple maker, to make disciples. That begins with evangelism, the gospel, and defending your faith. So right here as we, as we begin, I want to encourage you that defending your faith starts with surrendering control. Relinquishing control to God. Setting him apart as Lord in your life. 
God, I am willing to have those conversations whenever you decide, not me. There's a student that last semester I said about an hour before we had this big apologetics forum with atheists coming and things like that on campus. I I called her and I said, Caitlin, can you do your testimony tonight, your story? And she has a testimony of coming from a kind of background like that. And she says, of course I can. I said, I'm sorry for the short notice. She goes, don't worry about it. It's, it's God's story, not mine. He's the one that gets decide, to decide when I share it, not me. Okay, so relinquish control. Two, resolve to be a light. You're in a dark world. Get over it. <laughs> I think a lot of us are looking at the world going, it's getting so dark. I hope we win the next election. Whether or not we win the next election, the, this place is getting darker. It's not our home. I want good people to get elected to office as much as anyone. And I think we should be good stewards of the political freedoms that we have. But more importantly, embrace the reality that we're in a dark world and we're strangers in it and we're called to be a light in it. So resolve to be a light. But in your, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. He's Lord. He put me here for this very time, he says in Acts 7, uh, 17. I'm sorry. He said that he determined the times and the places that we would live. That people would find him. So it was no accident to him that he put you here in the context of a society that's spiraling out of control. He wanted you here to be a light in this dark place. So resolve to be a light. Apologetics, guys, begins with evangelism. We can't put the cart before the horse. Apologetics is important, but a lot of times it becomes just an argument if it's not in the context of evangelism. As we resolve to be a light, we're resolving to preach the gospel to those around us. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 10? They can't come to salvation unless someone preaches to them. So resolve to be a light. Resolve to share your faith with those around you. All right, so key number three is ready yourself. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared. Always be prepared means that we should be readying ourselves continually. So many people approach apologetics with virtually no preparation. So my challenge this morning is, have you ever diligently prepared to be able to effectively defend your faith? And if not, I'm not saying that you should feel guilty and bad about it. We're going to give you a good tool that will help you do that. But begin living a commitment to preparing So that when those situations come up, when you're asked about the hope that is in you, you'll be ready to defend the hope that you have. I want you to remember this statement. Unconvinced apologists are unconvincing. When I use the word apologia, that's the word that's used, apologia, that's the word that's used in 1 Peter 3.15 for defense, and it means to give a defense. An apologist is simply one that gives a defense for their faith. Now, many apologists or defenders are unconvinced. They have poor arguments that they don't even understand, and they're kind of ignorantly arguing their point without even knowing what's going on. They're unconvinced, and they're unconvincing. You don't know how many people I talk to that have been unconvinced by leaders, supposedly, in the church that kicked them out of youth group because they asked hard questions. There's a guy right now that wants to meet with me because he's been kicked out of numerous churches because he always asks hard questions, right? This guy is a 26-year-old that's in a very professional position, but nobody has simply sat down with him and worked through the answers with him. 
at least in a satisfactory way. So my challenge is not to be an unconvinced apologist that offers weak arguments, but to discipline yourself, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, to prepare so that you'll always be ready, always be prepared to give that defense and to do it well. 2 Corinthians 5.11-21 is this passage that talks about being ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation. And Paul begins that talking about how we try to persuade men. You may have heard the lie that... If somebody can be talked into their faith, they can be talked out of it. That's blatantly not true. Okay, let me just tell you a little bit about Paul, how he persuaded people or talked them into it. Do you know Paul did this in Thessalonica? He did it all over, but it specifically uses the word persuaded people in Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, Caesarea, and Rome. Isn't that amazing? It is a lie that you cannot talk someone into coming to faith in Christ. Now, I want to make a little bit of a, uh, a clarification there. There has to be a work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. It's not just you being convincing enough that brings them to that point. But you get to co-labor with the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3.9. He is working in their heart in a way that you can't, but you're sharing evidence in a verbal way that they aren't going to hear otherwise. Does that make sense? That's what we need to prepare to do, to diligently prepare to share the evidence with people that need to hear the evidence. Let's go through some of that right now. Apologetics begins with the gospel. I think that would include your testimony. Be ready to share what God has done in your life. That's probably the first apologetical step you need to take. Also, learn to ask good questions. You might not have all the answers, but you can ask good questions, and oftentimes that's better than any answer. This last week we were doing a little evangelism with a guy that claimed to be God. No joke. Okay? Claimed to be God. I look at him and I said, really? Have you ever healed a blind man? Yes, I have. Have you ever raised somebody from the dead? Yes, I have. And at this point I'm thinking, I can't argue with this guy. (laughs) He's crazy, right? He's absolutely loony. Uh, you know what Ann says on our staff team? Little, little Ann, petite little, sweet little Ann, doesn't have all the apologetics in the world memorized. She goes, if, if, if anyone and everyone can be God, why did Jesus have to die for our sins? <laughs> the guy just totally got stumped, right? She goes, if there's no sin, why did he have to die for us? Blank. And it just illustrated this point to me. I was trying to trap this guy with these hard answers. This simple question did more than I did. (laughs) The guy was stumped by it. So learn how to ask good questions, okay? Aaron, you should have seen how she stumped the JWs at our house a couple weeks ago. John 1.1 says Jesus was a God. I would normally jump in. There's no no definite article there. It doesn't say a, all that. You know what she said? Simple question. Oh, you believe in more than one God? (laughs) They said, oh, no, 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 no. He was a God like mighty God. The Father is almighty God. Oh, so you believe in more than one God. They were like, of course, like Allah and all these other gods. She goes, yeah, those are false gods. Do you believe Jesus is a false God? No, 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 (laughs) no. She was just asking good questions. So maybe before we jump into the evidence, learn to ask some good questions. You might get really far down the road as you defend your faith. But let me go through this really briefly and then I'll summarize because we don't have a lot of time here. This is meant to help you get at least a jump start, a head start on defending your faith. Okay, we call it the BEST FACTS acronym. If you can memorize these 
these two words, best in facts, and the acronyms. Leah, I couldn't talk without talking about an acronym. <laughs> um, this will help you tremendously. I'm just going to run through it, but you can get more at thebestfacts.com. And at that link, you're going to get an MP3 where we unpack it more, and you can click on each letter and get more. There's more there. But let me go through it. B, the beginning of the universe and life points to a creator. Even scientists today across the scientific spectrum believe in what they call the Big Bang. And they would say, we know from science that all that you see began to exist a finite time ago. Okay? They would call that the Big Bang. What do we call it, Ronnie? Creation, right? But what we need to realize is they're admitting that there was a supernatural, inexplicable start to this universe a finite time ago. That proves that there had to be a cause greater than this universe. So no matter who you're talking with, whether it's a scientist or anybody else, modern consensus is that there is no explanation for everything here. Well, we know there is. A God who divinely created this all. Okay? And we can begin with that. E, how do I know that there's a God? The engineering of the universe for life. The fine-tuning argument. S, how can I know there's a God? Standards and morality. This is the moral argument for God's existence, and it's compelling. If anything is morally right or wrong, if torturing babies for fun is wrong, then God must exist. It sounds a little like a weak argument, but it's not. This is the argument that led C.S. Lewis to Christ, and it's led other big modern scientists and other thinkers to Christ as well. Okay? T, the truth about Jesus. Did you know that the historical evidence for Jesus is overwhelming? The biggest critic of Christianity alive today says if you doubt Christ's historicity, you're a mythicist. That's coming from the biggest critic. And he says, if you doubt his historicity, you're a mythicist. Now, he's going to put a spin on the historicity of Christ that virtually all the scholars in his field disagree with, or a large percentage of the scholars in his field disagree with. But he's going to admit, you can't deny his historical existence. Okay? Guess what else? We can't deny the historicity of the resurrection. That same critic, he goes through all these crazy other... Uh, ways of refuting the evidence for the resurrection and he goes do my arguments sound probable and he goes absolutely not that's a direct quote absolutely not but he goes they're more probable than a resurrection because resurrections don't happen what's he just what's he just done dave knows my brother he's just taken his presupposition and he's made it his conclusion he's told you i don't care what the evidence says i refuse to look at it i don't believe in resurrections so i don't care what the evidence says that's circular thinking. It's a fallacy of logic called begging the question. The biggest critic of the Bible today does that to get out of the evidence for the resurrection. That should tell you a little bit about the confidence that you can have that Jesus conquered death for you and me. And because of that, we can have hope. We can share this evidence with a world that has no hope. Okay? And we're called to do that. So those are four arguments for God's existence. There are many other. Can we go through five for why we can trust the Bible? It's on the back. F, it foretells the future. Prophecy is throughout scripture, and prophecy about Jesus is overwhelming, okay? Because of that, we can see God's fingerprints on his word. A, it's archaeologically accurate. You know, this summer, I, there's so much archaeological evidence, but you know this summer they found the bulai for Ahimaaz, this obscure figure in David's court from 1 and 2 Kings and 1 Samuel? Isn't that interesting? They found this in Jerusalem, his little stamp that he would press into wax. 
Uh, There are many others, but this is the first reference to him outside of Scripture. And he's an obscure guy. We're talking even the minor issues of Scripture we can trust archaeologically 100%. See, the Bible is contradiction-free. The contradictions that people bring up evaporate when we read the word in its context the way it was meant to be read. Okay? The only time we get the contradictions is when we impose our own view onto Scripture, and that becomes a problem. Okay, T, it's translated correctly. People always say, we can't trust Scripture. It's been translated so many times, we don't know what was originally written. Well, thankfully, we can go to the original languages, the Greek and the Hebrew, and there are thousands of manuscripts that can give us utmost confidence in what was originally written. Okay? Finally, S, there's science in the Bible. The Bible is not a scientific textbook, right? It's not a quantum mechanics textbook. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) But there are scientific statements throughout God's word that show us that he divinely inspired it. Things like radioactive decay, the expansion of the universe, even the beginning of the universe and its beginning with light, all confirmed by modern science but written in scripture thousands of years ago. You guys, when we look at our faith, it is not based in ignorance. It is based in evidence. We aren't taking a blind leap into the dark. We're stepping out in confidence as we put our faith in Christ. Now, that's just a brief summary. If you'll just memorize those two arguments and somebody puts you on the spot, why can you believe? How can you do that? I've done this. Well, I believe in God because of the beginning of the universe and life, the engineering of the universe for life. I believe in God because if anything is right or wrong, that requires a, an objective moral lawgiver and sustainer. And the truth, the historical evidence for Jesus is indisputable. I believe in God's word because it's prophetic. It foretells the future. It's archaeologically supported. It's contradiction-free. It's translated correctly. And there's science in it that... There's no way it could have been there on accident. That's why I believe in God and his word. I've never one time heard somebody say, oh, that's, that's terrible evidence. Because what's their evidence? The bumper sticker I saw. Okay? So if you can respectfully learn to defend your faith, and I'm begging you to be respectful, and we'll close with that, this is critical to being able to defend it in a way where they can come to a Savior, not just fight you on it. All right, so key four is reach out. People can't ask you about the hope that you have if they don't know you have that hope. Again, apologetics begins with evangelism. So defend your faith in the context of sharing your faith. Take the initiative, guys. That's my challenge to you. People out there are just like the people on the Man in the Street videos, and they desperately need to hear that there's something more, that there's evidence, and they aren't hearing it. They're going to class. I talked to a guy last week. He is in a a, uh, New Testament class at UNM. Guess who the author is? (laughs) The author of his textbook is the biggest critic of Christianity alive today. Modern scholarship is is refuting this guy. But they're not not giving students those guys. They're giving them a very one-sided picture. Okay? Well, you might just be the person that has the other side of the story. This young student, I said, let's start meeting each week and talk about what you learn in class, and we'll go over it together. I thank God I get to be that voice in his life. But there are a lot of people that you're in contact with that I won't get to be that voice in their life. God's called you to be that voice in their life. So prepare, and then reach out. Take the initiative. Okay, finally, five, respect those you share with. You know 1 Peter 2.17, it's just the chapter before 3.15, Peter says, honor everyone, 
And that word honor even references revering or even venerating. We're called to honor people, to respect them when we share with them. You can win an argument at the expense of a soul. Don't do that. I've done that. We did a debate on campus once, this evolution debate. Some of you remember it. And afterwards, this lady came up and said, what you said tonight was brilliant. And I kind of thought, thank you. But she goes, but you were a jerk. (laughs) Um, She goes, you undermined everything you said by the way you treated that evolutionist. Uh, And I learned that night, I'm never making that mistake again. So last semester, we did another big forum, right? We do these quite often. We did one last week. Uh, Last spring, we did one, our first one at UNM. And the whole atheist club came. And they were not respectful. They were talking over me from the audience and like kept trying to, to like hijack the thing. And I, I was respectful to them, very respectful. And to the point where I walked out of that meeting and I felt like I didn't confront them enough, challenge them enough. I didn't deal with their issues enough. I was too nice, I felt like. I felt disillusioned after that event. Ron, you probably got the email where I said something like, it didn't go as well as it could have. <laughs> It was probably my disillusionment speaking. Well, do you know today there's, there's still an atheist that I'm talking with that, that was there that night that, that wants to talk? He called me at the end of the last semester and said, uh, we need to talk for an extended amount of time. We talked four hours. He hasn't trusted Christ yet, but I surely thank God that I respected those people that night. That night wasn't the end. There are relationships that began that night, and we can keep walking through things with them. Okay, as we think about respecting those we share with, I want to encourage you to embrace Jesus' compassionate heart for the harvest. In Matthew 9.36, he realized that they were like sheep without a shepherd. If anything ever described our society today, that's it. And he saw that the harvest was ripe, but he had compassion on them, it says. He had compassion on the harvest. So when you look at people that are believing the most insane things that you've ever heard of, like that men can have babies and things like that, uh, you might be tempted to say, you're out of your mind. And they are out of their mind because (laughs) they're believing some, some wild tales. But I implore you to beg God for his heart for the lost, to approach them with compassion, to share the evidence in a relational and respectful way, And to begin a relationship that might just end with them coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So here's my my application challenge for you this morning. Okay? You got this little this little tool. I want you to familiarize yourself with this. Even memorize these nine words. You could do that. These nine statements. It's not that hard. You could probably do it by early this afternoon if you put yourself to it. And then think about somebody that you know is a doubter, a skeptic. And ask them if you could buy them coffee sometime. Okay? Think about that person in your head right now. Maybe make a mental note of the name of the person. Maybe it's a relative. Maybe a neighbor. Maybe a coworker. Say, I want to buy you lunch or I want to buy you coffee. And I want to talk to you about the reasons that I've put my faith and trust in Christ. And I want to hear your reasons. You know, a lot of times I ask atheists, what evidence led you to atheism? I've yet to get an answer. Isn't that funny? They always say, well, what evidence led you to yours? (laughs) Oh, thanks for asking. (laughs) I'd love to tell you. (laughs) Um, So maybe sit down and have that conversation with someone. And be respectful. You might just find that it actually makes your relationship with that person stronger. It might just be a lie that it makes it awkward. 
You might make a friend out of it. They might even come to faith in Christ through it. So here's the conclusion. Take the initiative to share your faith, to share the gospel, and to defend what you know to be true. I want you to remember the five keys. One is relinquish control. Set apart Christ as Lord. Two is resolve to be a light. You're in a dark world. Get over it. I think it's easy to want everything to be nice and light. It ain't going to be that way till heaven. So embrace where God has put you and resolve to be a light in a dark world. Jesus, till the day I die, I'm going to be a light. (laughs) I've been praying about what to do with, with the radio show. And literally about two weeks ago, I was ready to end it because I don't think that's the the focus of where we're going as a ministry. And I've been praying that God would give me uh, wisdom about the show and somebody to co-host it. (laughs) Like a week ago, I get put together with an amazing new friend that uh, actually is much better trained in apologetics than I am, uh, passionate. He did this forum with us last week, and uh, he co-hosted with me on the show this week. I say all that to say, though, last night we're texting back and forth, and I just said, Grant, you're an incredible answer to prayer. And I thank God for the extra energy to make this show what it needs to be. I don't want to do it half-heartedly. I want to make it quality, you know. But I need more energy than I can put into it right now. And um, he said, Nate, I'm so thankful that God has brought you into my life and that we share a passion for apologetics. But then he said something key in the context of evangelism. It's not just answers. Then he closed out his text. He said, Nate, let's give him heaven. (laughs) I thought that's the right idea. Let's give him heaven, guys. Let's give him heaven. All right. So five keys. Relinquish control. Resolve to be a light. Ready yourself. Prepare. Be diligent. Memorize the best facts and get your hands on some other good resources. Reach out. Take the initiative to share this evidence, not just to keep it in. And respect those that you share with. I've heard it put this way. There are five gospels. Do you know this? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. And a lot of times people aren't going to read the other four. So, guys, you get to bring the other four to them. You get to bring the gospel to them, but do it in a way that conveys God's love for them and respects them and points them to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3.9, Acts 1.8, John 15.5. Three quick verses. As you're walking in his power, co-laboring with him, you're going to bear fruit that will last, guys. I'm not just saying all this in the theoretical sense. Eternity will be something dramatically different because you allowed God to use you and to do his will in and through you. And someday you're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for taking the initiative to be a light, for sharing the hope that was in you and the evidence for it.